Well, welcome everyone to the first broadcast of Novak Now. I'm your host, Jake Novak, and first I want to thank Nachum Siegel, his general manager, Miriam Wallach, dear friends of mine, for giving me this opportunity to do this show. And today, this very first show is coming to you from the offices of Blue Star Indexes in Midtown Manhattan. And Blue Star founder and chief investment officer, Stephen Schoenfeld, will be our guest a little later in this half hour. But first, I want the audience to know a little bit about the show's mission and this mission statement. This is the first show. People want to know what's going on here, what we're trying to do. And let you know very simply, we're going to focus on the big stories, the big news stories of the day, and offer what I hope to be unique analysis of those stories. And I mean un unique. You will not hear the same ideas here. You will not hear a lot of the same stories here that you do elsewhere in the mainstream media or even in other talk radio programs. And that's really the goal. So there's two reasons for that. One reason is I've been a television news producer for 25 years, and this I simply cannot stand it when you turn on the channels and look at the TV news cable channels and the regular broadcast channels. And not only are they doing the same lead story, they're all doing about the first same three or four stories, all with the same analysis, all the same uniformity. And I actually think it's, it's kind of a scandal. It's a real problem in American news media and in the world news media as well, pretty much follows the same pattern. So that is not going to be something that we do on this program. And you'll find out that you'll find that out very clearly in the next few minutes when I talk about what our top story really is for today and really is for this week. Um, but that's going to be one thing. And the second reason why the show is going to be different is because we're going to lean in favor of focusing on the big stories for Israel and the Jewish community. That won't always be our top story. It won't always even be in every broadcast. But in this case, it will be today. Uh, and you better believe that two days before the State of Israel celebrates its 70th anniversary of the establishment of the State of Israel, that is going to be our top story, not only for today, but really for this week. And look, I understand especially from the Nahum Siegel audience, that this is an easy sell. I mean, I could score very easy points here and say, hey, let's talk about Israel and not really make my point there and not have to back up that point. But I want to do that here for a couple of reasons. One is for most of us, for most of us who follow news out of the state of Israel, for most of us who feel supportive of the state of Israel, or for those of us who are just concerned about it or, or follow it very closely, the state of Israel and Israel news is very much about Israel politics, is very much about religion, and to some extent, it's very much about military. These are three things that are hot topics all the time. People get into them. You'll understand that. But what I want to focus on today in this program is what I consider to be the absolutely objective, non-disputable, you can't argue, real, real facts about why the state of Israel, the establishment of the state of Israel, and going back a little bit further, the rebuilding of what we now know as the land of Israel as being really has to be one of the top five or top three stories of all humanity of the last 100 years. And I'll explain that. It's, again, this is separating it from the religious, political, and military miracle that we most of us consider and think about when we think about the state of Israel. Not that those things aren't important. Those things are very, very important. But when you think about what Israel has done for, as an example of what humankind can do under incredible, incredible uh, negative odds, that is really what I wanted to focus on. So... First off, the first thing that really needs to be made clear before we even get into the reasons is to really, I have to urge everyone who's listening to this program, Jewish, evangelical, secular, anyone who cares about the state of Israel, please, please celebrate this Independence Day. Not only because it's the 70th anniversary, but because this past year has given us real added, exciting new hope, not as 
powerful and as incredible as the miracle of the state of Israel itself, but really, really interesting, interesting developments over the last couple of years, really the last year that I want to focus on. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But again, look, folks, we all know how we get, whether we're Jewish or not, we get worried about bad news. We, we think about it all the time. And then we celebrate our individual holidays, no matter what religion we are or not, not at all. Um, as you follow Novak now, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll soon come to know one of my, one of my very strong sayings, very strong beliefs is there's no such thing as a non-religious person. I don't care how non-religious you say you are. There's something that you're religiously devoted to. And we'll talk about that over the course of the several weeks on this program. But this is something to celebrate. So I don't know how you want to do it. Maybe you want to go to a local Yom Ha'atzmaut celebration. Maybe you just want to have a nice meal with your family. Um, there's a professor from uh, Montreal who now is, lives in Israel named Gil Troy who is suggesting serving your kids ice cream for breakfast on Thursday. <laughs> Whatever you do, uh, make sure that you celebrate this. This is such an amazing event. And when you think about where the Jewish people were and the entire world was in 1947, 1948, this is a great, great achievement for humankind. And again, we'll get into some of the details of that. Um, in a little bit, in a little bit, but that is really something that we cannot, we cannot, cannot uh, overlook. Um, so again, I want to focus on what the objective celebratory facts are about what we now know as a land of Israel. Now, again, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this on the premier show of Novak now? Why am I doing this now? And I, I have to think there's a, a really interesting story that I heard about President Ronald Reagan that really is a, a very big marching order for me in my entire career. And that is, after he was shot, remember, Ronald Reagan was president for a very short time. He was shot, shot in March of 1981. So that's really just less than two months or so after he was inaugurated president. And he spent a few months in the hospital recovering, and finally he comes back, and the White House is ready to start working on his policy initiatives. He really is ready to do that, and the White House is ready to do that. And he wanted to go in and just reintroduce himself to some members of the White House staff who hadn't seen him since the shooting and showed them that he was happy that he was back and that he was happy that they had continued to work while he was convalescing. And he went downstairs and, and to a small room, the speechwriters room. Sometimes we think of speechwriting for the president as a really glamorous job, but they get a real small basement office and they kind of are on top of each other, especially back before computers in 1981. So he's... President Reagan is walking into the speechwriter's room, and he's speak and he, and one of the people there is someone I know, a woman named Faith Whittlesey, who was working with Peggy Noonan and the other people in the White House as a speechwriter. And he says, "You know, what are you guys working on for me? What I'm I'm about to go present my tax plan to the to the Congress, and I really want something good. And we're going to do some some rallies. We're going to go to some places where that voted for me heavily uh, back in 1980. What are you guys working on for me?" And all of the speechwriters say, "Oh, Mr. Reagan, Mr. President." It's going to be like preaching to the choir. Don't worry about it. Just show yourself, smile, show that you're ready to go. Don't worry about what we're writing. It doesn't really matter. You just be preaching to the choir. And President Reagan got very, very serious for a second. He, the smile went off of his face, and he looked very closely into the eyes of all the speechwriters, and he said, the choir needs music. And this is something that I feel very, very strongly is also the case with the state of Israel. For those of us who support the state of Israel, we can't just go to a march or two, say that we support Israel, talk about that from an emotional sense. We need to have some choir music. And by that, I mean we need to have the facts at our disposal. We need to be able to have very, very updated facts at our disposal. We need to know what is so great about the state of Israel. We need to know all of those things and have them ready because otherwise it just looks like we really are rooting for something and we don't really have a reason to root for them. And so that is really important. So I want to talk about the music. Now, one of the things you hear a lot 
about Israel, from people who support Israel. This is a complaint that I'm sure you've heard. In fact, those of you probably already started to guess. A lot of people say, well, the state of Israel has done all these great things. They've built this country out of nothing. They have a fantastic military. But boy, when it comes to public relations, they're not so good. And the Hebrew word for that is Hasbara. Everyone complains, why isn't the Hasbara better? Of course, you hear this mostly from pro, I would say, you know, pro Jewish journalists who, who, are, who are favorable to, to Israel. There's some, <laughs> there are a lot of journalists, Jewish journalists who are not favorable to Israel. But you hear, I hear this all the time. And sometimes they whisper it. Sometimes they write columns about it. They're very public about how that is very important to them. And I want to say something very, very important right now that everyone should remember about Hasbara, about PR when it comes to the state of Israel. And that is, PR is our job. It's not the state of Israel's job. And I'll explain why. It's not just because Israel has more important things to do. Because I do think public relations is extremely important and getting the message out is important. It's not a question of that. It's just that when a government or an official entity is saying something, it sounds like a commercial. Think about it. When you have a friend who comes to you and tells you, hey, this is a great restaurant, and then you hear the ad on the radio, who says, and they say it's a great restaurant. Who really? Who has more influence over you? It's it's, it's your friend. It's a person that you trust. It's not a paid uh, shill for you know doing a commercial. So that's one thing. This was always true, but now, especially in the age of social media, folks, you absolutely everyone who feels strongly about the state of Israel not only has to get out on social media and 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 really talk about what's going on in in, in Israel, but they need to do it actively. And I don't care if you're 70 years old and you only go on Facebook to look at your grandkids' pictures. This is something that really needs to be done. Not just because this is a new medium. It's become the number one source of news for people in the Western world. The Facebooks and the Twitters, all of these are absolutely the way people get news right now. So there is no excuse. But you know what? Even 100 years ago in World War I, this was the case as well. We all know how World War I both before the United States got involved in the war. We know that both the Germans and the British and the Allen French we're putting out a lot of propaganda about what's going on in the war. Some of it was true, some of it wasn't. And we can all say, hey, this, is, this was government propaganda and it was either effective or not effective. But actually, it was only effective when people started to repeat it and talk about it amongst themselves and really make it a part. You know, they, they even talked about it in synagogues and churches. And that's when that kind of stuff got really took hold. So it's very, very important that we understand something. Instead of complaining about public relations, we need to do it ourselves. And to do it ourselves, we need to know a lot of the facts. So this is the choir music. So I want to talk about that again on this premiere episode, premiere showing of the of Novak. Now I'm your host, Jake Novak, and we are talking about really the top story of the week, certainly for the Jewish world, but really for just about the whole world, in my opinion. And that is the 70th anniversary of the state of Israel, a tremendous, tremendous achievement of of, of human ingenuity, not just about religion, not just about politics, and certainly not just about military. Now, I could start the story of the state of Israel at 1948, the 70th anniversary. You could do that. Or you could go 4,000 years earlier and talk about the biblical history of Israel. But I want to start with the beginning of what the, the building of what we now know as the modern state of Israel, which really, I mean, if you have to pinpoint a nice round number year, it's 1880. 1880 is that year. and that you're, Now, let's take a look at what the land of it we now know as the land of Israel is like in 1880. We're talking about a state that's most, an area that's mostly barren that has a population of maybe a quarter of a million people. I, I'm probably being generous because about you know, a good percentage of that quarter of a million people were really transigents. They didn't really have permanent residences. They were moving in and out. But let's say it's about a half a million people, about 40,000, 50,000 Jews. The rest are Arabs. And again, it's a completely barren. And for those who want to get a pretty good idea of how barren it was, you can read Mark Twain's writings about the state of, again, the Holy Land, as I called it back then, uh, which were just a few years earlier. 1867 is when Mark Twain visited 
Israel. So that is really what you had at that point. You had almost nothing. And disgusted with the persecution in Europe, and also because there are some new freedoms, Jews start coming to the land of Israel to join that small Jewish population that had always been there around 1880. And here's what they do in just a very short amount of time. They start to drain the swamps. They extract salt from the soil, which had, which was there naturally, and also because the Romans plowed it into the soil when they destroyed uh, what was then the Judean um, Judean Republic in in in, in two thousand years before. They start terracing the hills, and they start, of course they plant you know many many trees, and suddenly this land that really couldn't even barely sustain the quarter of a million population becomes a land that by 1929-1930 can sustain millions of people, and start to really become. A sustainable economy and a, a place where a lot of people wanted to live. Again, now what you have now is a country of eight and a half million people from what, again, from a country that just a hundred years ago or so could not even sustain a quarter of a million. That's very important to remember. And that is where you have to start thinking about all the things that have happened in the world since Israel's great rebirth. So let's think of everything that's happened since about 1880 or 1900. You've had two world wars. You've had a great depression that didn't just hit the United States. It hit the whole world. You had the rise of weapons of mass destruction. You had the rise of communism, the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust. And still, Israel's number one goal is to, is to, and successful goal is to make this land livable. Again, we can talk about the politics. We can talk about the fact that the state of Israel got independence from the British mandate. We can talk about how they built a military. We can talk about the, the religious freedoms and all of that that means to us from that emotional standpoint. But you can't have a country if people can't live. People can't drink the water and people can't have enough food to sustain themselves or a heck of a, a heck of an inco incoming port system so that the, these supplies can come into the country, then you're not going to have a country. And that is very, very important. And that is really the greatest, greatest miracle that the country has to offer. And it's really, really important. Now, I want to pause here and make something very, very clear about this rebirth and the resurrection of what was a dead land. And that is the Jews did, could not and did not do this on their own. This is where things you might think are getting controversial. But actually, this is really, I've always felt, is the real glimmer of hope for the future of the entire region. Because again, the Jews didn't do this alone. As the Jews start coming back to the land of Israel to join that small population that was always there, hundreds of thousands of Arabs from the Ottoman Empire, the neighboring country, start to pour into the country also. Now, do they pour in there because they want to sing Havana Gila with the Jews? Do they pour in there because they want hummus? No. They pour in there because the Jews are offering jobs. The Jews don't have the manpower. In some cases, they didn't have the know-how, but they didn't have, They certainly did not have the manpower to do the kind of building and agricultural work that they needed to do. And so hundreds of thousands of Arabs start pouring in, some of them legally, most of them illegally and completely off the books. They didn't build a wall. <laughs> Everyone sort of came in. And what happened was that they started to pour in and they started to help build the country. And between 1880 and 1929, this is a very, very important point. I want everyone to remember this. If you remember one thing from the first episode of Novak Now, please remember this. From 1880 to 1929, the coexistence between the Jews and the Arabs is relatively peaceful and very, very productive. All those terraced hills, all those planted trees, all those drained swamps, all that agricultural miracle that happens is very much the result of Jews and Arabs basically working together, again, not singing Kumbaya, but working together for the practical purpose of making a land livable and living in a little bit more freedom. The Jews wanted more freedom from pogroms and other persecution in Europe. 
And the Arabs wanted to have some form of economic sustainability, which they weren't getting in the rest of the Ottoman Empire. And this works very, very well. And we'll go into more detail in future programs about what happened in 1929 and, and further. But just to summarize, things get start going downhill in 1929 when Arab leaders start to stoke the jealousies of the Arab people. And other outside influences, including a very, very strong influence of Nazism, starts to spread in the Arab world, particularly among what we now know as the Palestinians or Arabs who were living in what was now that, then the, 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 the colony of the Palestine, the British Mandate of Palestine. And of course, a huge amount of the blame for this also falls at the feet of the British, who followed their standard operating procedure that they did with in their colonies all over the world, which was to set different minority groups off against each other so that they would play a paternal role and keep their power that way. And the British have a tremendous, tremendous um, call to answer. They really, they really had a huge role in, the de in, in what was the detrimental um, deterioration of the Arab-Jewish relationship in what was then the land, the, the Holy Land or the British Mandate of Palestine. Again, you're listening to the first initial premiere episode of Novak Now. I'm your host, Jake Novak, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And we're talking about why the 70th anniversary of the State of Israel, which will start celebrating Wednesday night going into Thursday here in the United States, is really such a huge story, not just for the Jewish community and not just for the evangelical community, but for the entire world. This is an amazing story of how anything is possible. I don't want to say that the land of Israel, we now know the land of Israel in 1880 or in the 1860s was like a nuclear wasteland. It wasn't quite like that, but it was pretty bad. It was not a place where even the quarter of a million people there could live reliably, could live without having to go to Egypt or parts of Turkey to get supplies. It was not a sustainable or a place where anyone would really want to live. There was malaria was, was rampant, all kinds of other problems. So again, if you leave out the politics, if you leave out the military, if you leave out the religious, if you leave even, you don't even think about the Holocaust and what being able to come to Israel has meant for so many Jews since then, it's still one of the most, if not the most amazing example of human ingenuity of the last hundred years. And it's very, very important to remember that. Now, why is this year so important? Why is this year so important? For a couple of reasons. One, we can take the... The typical Jewish answer, which is 70 years, 70 is a really important number in, 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 the, in the Jewish tradition. It's considered to be, in rabbinic uh, teaching, basically a lifetime, 70 years. But which, as we know from archaeological um, studies, it's, to live to 70, 2,000 years ago, that was pretty old. That was probably living over 100 right now. But they consider that to be the outer limits of a lifetime, if you live that long. So that was, that's a, it's certainly a reason to be excited. It's a nice round number. We get it. But I also think, and it's very, very important to remember, that this particular year has been a tremendous, tremendous year for the state of Israel and for all the Middle East and the United States because of the changes that we have seen in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, I believe, has taken the first steps towards what I hope to be a return to Middle East pragmatism. Now, remember, I talked about how things were pragmatically working well between the Jews and Arabs between 1880 and 1929, before a lot of outside influences, especially Nazism, start to make their way into the Arab world. Now, Jews were never on equal terms with Arabs in the Arab world. They were never first-class citizens, as, we, as, we, as you could say. However, and there were instances of what we would consider today to be a pogrom here and there. But for the most part, there was no genocidal outlook on the Jewish people from any anywhere in the Muslim world, but particularly in the Arab world. That was never the go-to philosophy. 
But starting in 1929, Adolf Hitler starts to become very interested in what's going on in Palestine because of bloody riots in Hebron and, and the death of many Jews. He starts to become interested and he starts to become friendly with the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and he starts to sponsor him. And the Mufti actually spent much of his, the 30s and, and most of World War II in Berlin as a guest of Adolf Hitler, where every day he broadcast a radio program heard throughout the Muslim world, not just the Arab world, but also in what we now know as Iran. And he starts broadcasting this kind of hateful rhetoric all over the Middle East. And that is really what started a strange new path for a lot of Muslims, especially Arabs, in thinking of Jews as a genocidal enemy. And of course, we can fill in all the negative blanks after that. But what's happened in Saudi Arabia in the last year, I believe, is a return to some form of sanity that could lead to pragmatism. And maybe one day we can pray for some form of friendship. But what the Saudis have done under the leadership of the new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who is not an angel, is not a saint. This is not what we're saying here. And we're also trying to be very, very realistic. But what he has decided in the last year is that Saudi Arabia cannot stand up to Iran and cannot defend the Sunni interests against Shia interests while it's still in conflict in any way, in any serious way with Israel and the United States. And that is why in the last really more than a year, Saudi Arabia has become much more open about its cooperation with Israel. And we'll talk about that in, in, in just a few minutes. But I want to bring in now somebody who can really help quantify what I had said at the beginning of this first program of Novak Now. I was talking about how you don't have to be religious, you don't have to be interested in politics or, or military uh, achievements to see that the state of Israel has become such a success. And that is because, on my belief, the only real objective way to see if a country or a business or any venture is, is successful is the free market. I don't believe the free market is the most important thing. <laughs> I believe our families and our values, our morals are much more important. But the free market is a truth teller when it's allowed to tell the truth. And Israel is such an amazing story in that, in that sense. So because we're doing our first program here uh, at the offices of Blue Star Indexes in Manhattan, I wanted to bring in the founder and the chief investment officer of Blue Star Indexes, Stephen Schoenfeld. And I'm going to let him tell us a little bit more what, what he does in a second. But just to get a quick summary, Blue Star Indexes allows people to invest in the state of Israel. And again, hey, do me a favor, continue to buy the trees, buy the Israel bonds, do those things. But if you want to find a way to really understand how strong the state of Israel is, then these kinds of ventures are the way to do it. So Stephen, thank you for being our very first guest here on Novak Now, and thank you for letting us come and use your offices today. It's a real pleasure and it's an honor to be your first guest, Jay. So Stephen, if people want to invest in the state of Israel, before we talk about the opportunities that Blue Star offers them, what can you tell us about, if, if I had to take the temperature, if I would ask you to take the temperature of the Israeli economy right now and the Israeli markets, what would you say? So I will, I'd love to give you a quote of my own, but I'd rather use a quote of the IMF, which objectively uh, assesses 140 plus economies. And they just visited Israel last month. And the first word they used was thriving. The Israeli economy is thriving. Um, when we think about Israel at 70, the pride of the growth of the economy is something everyone who cares about Israel should be very proud of. GDP growth around three and a half percent. So a leader in developed markets. Israel graduated from being an emerging market to a developed market eight years ago, and it's now a leader amongst the OECD. Very low inflation, record low unemployment, very stable and diversified economy, and 
diversified trade patterns. Israel used to be very dependent on trade from Europe and the US. It still has growing trade with both those areas, but its trade with Asia is booming, with Latin America, with Africa. And so Israel is really a global player. And what many people don't know, you think of Israel as this tiny country perched amongst uh, in a hostile neighborhood, but both in objective raw GDP, Israel's the 33rd largest economy in the world. That's not nothing. Mm. <laughs> and it's uh, also very high in per capita GDP. The way Israel's growing by Israel's 75th uh, anniversary of independence, it's likely to have a, a per capita GDP similar to France and Japan. It's an amazing achievement. Yeah, that's a, that is amazing, Jim. Just to give you some raw numbers on it, the Israel's GDP is at about 320, 325 billion dollars in a country that has eight and a half million people, and that's up from 140 billion just 15 years ago. So that is a huge jump. And just to give you some perspective, Egypt, Israel's neighbor to the south has basically the same GDP with a 96 million pop, you know, person population. So more than 10 times the population, Israel's basically punching 10 times above its weight in that region. And, you know, people, to remember about trade, it's not just about countries that want to get involved somewhere for a political reason. I mean, Israel has products and technologies and, you know, just goods and services that, that the world needs. And, uh, again, that's why the free market, it, to me, is the best way to kind of gauge if this is a successful country or not. Um, other countries don't have that. And, we, and earlier in the program, I talked about Hasbara. I talked about public relations. You know, any country can get the people. North Korea can get their people to march out in the streets and do a great parade. And they can say the greatest things. North Korea does great public relations when you think about it. They, they come off like a strong, strident country. Egypt and Syria, they do it too. Iran and Iraq used to do it. But they didn't have any reality to back it up. And the free market, of course, brings you that. So I want to ask you, Steve, it's Schoenfeld, again, the founder of Blue Star Indexes and also the chief investment officer, you offer a couple of pathways for people to invest in this juggernaut with, again, with, with, you know, within reason. You know, this isn't the goose that laid the golden egg, but it's a certainly an amazing opportunity. So how, how do people who want to invest seriously come to in Israel do that with, with uh, Blue Star? So the reason I created Blue Star was to enable anyone, a small, a small investor, my daughter's college fund, as well as a large endowment, for a Jewish federation, whether in Miami or Chicago, to invest efficiently in Israel. If you're invested in American stocks or European stocks, you absolutely should be invested in Israeli stocks. And the way we did that, Jake, is we built an index. Just like the S&P 500 measures the U.S., we have a family of indexes for Israel that basically cover the entire economy. Our flagship index is called the Blue Star Israel Global Index, or Biggie. And on the New York Stock Exchange is an ETF or an exchange-traded fund. The ticker is the first four letters of the country, ISRA or ISRA. Easy to remember. And ISRA invests in all the 138 companies in our Biggie Index. And our Biggie Index gives you exposure to all the leading sectors in Israel. And it does so in a very diversified way. Before I go into the details, because I'm sure you'll ask me, we also have an Israel Tech Index. So this is the leading Israeli tech companies, which, believe it or not, it's 77 public Israeli tech companies. And what's unique about what we do is we look at Israeli tech companies, whether they're listed here in New York on the NASDAQ or the NYSE, in Tel Aviv, in London, and even in Hong Kong, Australia, and Singapore, where, where Israeli companies are listed. So that's the G, the global, in our index. And that, that index has an ETF also listed on the NYSE. ITEC, Israel Tech, ITEQ. 
uh, we're, we're about one minute away from needing to wrap up. So what I'm going to do is make sure everyone can uh, follow all the things that that uh, Stephen has, Stephen Schoenfeld, the founder and chief investment officer of, of Blue Star Indexes, has to write about, and, and the opportunities. I will put them up on our on my social media feeds at Jake Jake NY, which is my Twitter feed at Jake Jake NY, and also my Facebook page. You can just look for Jake Novak, and we will make sure that you can go to his website and find out ways to invest. But it's, again, it's just so important for everyone to understand that the free market has decided that Israel is a success. And that's really the best arbiter. And, and Stephen, I thank you for, for hosting here and letting me do the show from this very first show from your offices uh, and getting people an idea of how they can invest. And again, I think your, your comment, comment that, the, that the economy is very strong is very, very important. This was the very first episode and program of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak. I was your host, reminding you that, again, the big story this week, Israel's 70th anniversary. Please celebrate it. And, if you, and remember, the choir needs music. Make sure you get that music so that you can talk about how great the state of Israel really is and how important it is to the world. Thank you so much.